0: Hey everyone, I have uh, a great honor to introduce you Rick Burdett. Um, like I said earlier, he is the senior minister of Gardenside Christian Church. I think he's been there since 2013. I'm in my seventh year. Seventh year. So he's been, he's been loving on my other family for a really long time, so I, I really appreciate that. Uh, my, Kaylee's parents uh, grew up at that church. Kaylee grew up at that church, and I was invited into that church. I was baptized at that church um, so it is a great honor for him just to continue to love on those people. And I, I am eternally grateful for your passion. Um, you are a UK fan. I would touch your shirt, but I'm afraid my hand would burst into flames if I touched that. <laughs> You're just mad at perfection and winning. That's okay. <laughs> or cheating. Either <Cheating. laughs> Oh, but I love you, man. I love you, too. <laughs> the breaks, man. Oh, oh no, man. Come on. Come on. All right, everybody, why don't you guys give a big round of applause for Rick Burdett. <laughs> so, so I'm I'm so grateful for this church, and uh, uh, I'm going to tell you just from the get-go that you are a blessed church. You truly uh, have uh, pastors that love you. I love David and Rachel and their family. I love uh, Ria and John, and thankful for Rob and Kaylee and the answers to prayer that are happening in, in their life, and, and Jenny and Paul, I know as they're loving on your kids, uh, a couple of years ago, I got to share with you, I think I shared my testimony here a couple of years ago, and uh, a while back, Dave Kipler says, oh, we got, we need to do that pulpit swap again. I said, I'd love to, Dave, and I didn't think much about it until I was at a funeral uh, I was doing a funeral, and uh, your buddy Dave Birdwhistle was there. Dave, where you at? You in here somewhere? I feel like I'm like get, you know I'm on trial, you know. But uh, Dave, there you are, Dave. So I'm uh, we're I'm doing a funeral of a mutual friend, and I just off the cuff I mentioned <laughs> Kayla. I said, hey, Dave invited me over to do a, a pulpit swap, and Dave goes, oh, will you come preach to us? Oh. So I told David Kibler that, yeah, I said. And then, then I said, well, we're in a series called uh, Straight from Romans 8. And you're going to be preaching <laughs> on uh, Romans 8:28, Second most beloved scripture in the New Testament, probably, or close second, right? All things work together for the good, for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I mean, it's, it's like a, for preacher. it's my, one of my favorite scriptures, it's like a slow-hanging curve. The ball just sits there for you to hit it out of the park. I said, well, what do you want me to preach on, Dave? And he goes, at Catalyst, I'd like for you to explain the tension between grace versus obedience and all the intricacies of it. (laughs) I said, Dave, man, I gave you a slow-hanging curve, and yours is a Nolan Ryan 100-mile-per-hour fastball over the outside corner, man. So we'll give it a shot this morning. I truly, truly love this church. I love my ministry at Gardenside, but I have a great, great deal of gratitude for Catalyst and your staff here and, and uh, for you loving on Rob and Kaylee and others that uh, are, are part of uh, our, our family as well. Uh, so as we start this morning, I, I thought I'd share with you under that theme, grace versus obedience, the gospel Misunderstood. And when Paul writes to the church at Timothy, which is being pastored by his son in the faith, uh, uh, son son in the faith, Timothy, he writes to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, uh, scripture I'm sure you're familiar with. And Paul writes these words. He says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the premise of this message is simple. Here's the premise. The gospel that saves us from work saves us to work. Folks, if we want to see the church unleashed into this world to fulfill its purpose and its mission, we've got to understand what the gospel is all about. And the gospel is so misunderstood. Imagine if you would. A man I'm going to call William. By the way, names have been changed to protect the innocent, okay? So this man named William, A couple of years ago, Bill made a confession of his faith in Christ. He was baptized, but according to William, his actions have nothing to do with his salvation. God's grace saved him. He believed it in faith. He comes to church. He even attends a community group. But Christ, Christ isn't clear in his character. It's not clear in his actions. He he doesn't have a great deal of love for people, lost people, especially even, even people who haven't heard about Jesus. He will tell you that, listen, I just don't have time for stuff like that. And although Bill believes, there's no real fruit other than religious activity. In a cultural Christianity. Or imagine Mary. All her life she has been in church. She is a Buick. You know what a Buick is? It is a brought up in church kid. Okay? Any Buicks here? Yes, a lot of Buicks, all right? And so Mary, even though she's she's Mary's been baptized four times. Mary has listened to sermon after sermon. She has attended every single Bethmore Bible study that's ever been in existence. She wants more than anything to please God. She works extraordinarily hard to do everything she can to please Him. Yet, Mary never feels like she's done enough. She never feels like she's worthy enough, she never feels like she's good enough, and both Bill and Mary, both Bill and Mary attend Catalyst and Gardenside Christian church. Bill thinks obedience has nothing to do with his salvation, and Mary thinks work has everything to do with hers. Both are confused. And I would share with you this morning, both are wrong. And until they get a right understanding of the gospel, they can never really accomplish the purpose and meaning that God has for their lives. If you want to free people to be what Jesus wants us to be in this community, in this country, in this world, then the gospel is the foundation and the motivation for what we do. That's why it's essential for you and I, for Bill and Mary, to understand that we have been saved from work to work. What do I mean, saved from work? I'm not sure which one scares me the most when I talk to you about Bill or Mary. Not sure which one scares me most in their misunderstanding of the gospel. But when Mary hears the radical challenge of Jesus saying this, deny yourself take up your cross, and come follow me. Mary instantly thinks, oh, oh, I've got to do more. I've got to sell my house. I've got to get rid of my Kia. I've got to go to Zimbabwe. Baba. You know? I've got to sacrifice all, everything I have for, for orphanages and, and starving children. I've got to earn this. One of my favorite movies, my favorite movie is a movie called Saving Private Ryan. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. I'm going to spoil it, okay? The whole premise of this movie is a platoon of soldiers led by Captain John Miller is going to go save a private James Ryan whose brothers have been killed and they want to bring him home safely to his mother. All of the soldiers, except for one, die. And at the end of this movie, there's a scene where Captain John Miller, who's married, has a wife at home, has been shot. He's dying on the bridge. And as he's dying on the bridge, this young private, who is given his life for, comes and leans over him. And you won't hear this unless you turn it way up and listen to it four or five times. But Captain John Miller whispers two words to... Captain John Miller whispers two words to Private James Ryan. You know what those two words are? Earn this. Earn this. And then it goes 40 years ahead where James Ryan is at, a fun- at the cemetery and he is looking at his wife. He's looking at his family. And he says, tell me that I'm a good man. Tell me I've been a good father. Tell me I've lived a good life. And he falls at that headstone, that cross and tears. Absolutely, filled with guilt and remorse. Was I good enough? Did I earn this? Was I worthy? Just like Mary understands the gospel. I can't be good enough. I'm not worthy. I can't earn this. Even if I go to Zimbabwe to take care of starving children, I am not worthy enough of God's love. And the beauty of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, you don't have to be. For we are saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work so that no one may boast. It's hard to accept this truth. We want in America to earn our own way, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to do what we are told to do. And folks, within our nature, we want to earn this in spite of our unworthiness, despite of being hopelessly lost in sin. Please understand the Scripture does not teach us that we are sick in our sin, The scriptures teach us that we are dead in our sin. Dead people don't need medicine. Dead people need a resurrection. Jesus loved us so much, he gave his life. God in the flesh, who lived a perfect life, one that you and I could not live, he kept all of God's commands perfectly. He alone was faithful enough. He alone was compassionate enough. Jesus alone was obedient enough. And although Jesus was free from sin, he bore the penalty for all our sin. On the cross, one man, one sacrifice for all time, for all people. The cross absolutely proves Jesus was human. He died, and the resurrection absolutely proves that Jesus is divine. He's God. He rose from the grave because on the cross He paid for the wages of our sin. By the way, what are the wages of sin? They're what? He paid wages we could not. And he proved that it was stamped paid in full when he whispered the word to Telestai on the cross because he rose victoriously from that death. And to Mary and to all those who struggle with working hard enough, When you turn yourself to trust in this Savior, He cleanses all our sin. He takes a rebellious heart and makes it obedient. He clothes us, clothes us with His righteousness. The starting point of your eternal life and my eternal life is an obedient surrender in a death, a burial, and resurrection in Christ. When I was 17 years old, in fact, I'll share with you, January 17, 1978, I gave my life to Christ because for the last eight months before then, He had absolutely cut my heart and showed me my sin. He pulled me to a relationship with Himself. And when I surrendered to Christ, I wasn't just getting wet to get baptized. I knew that the old Ricky had to die. All the rebellion, the selfish attitude, the sinful hurt that I'd heaped on everyone had to change. Jesus' spirit had cut me to the core, convicted me of this sin. He cut me and brought me to a place of healing. My baptism wasn't a bath. It wasn't an outward cleansing. It was a surrender and repentance to be united with Jesus in His saving death, buried in Christ so I could rise and live a new life because His Spirit made me new. He Forgave all my sins, they were washed clean. He gave me the gift of God. He gave me the gift of His Spirit to live in me and you. Why do I believe this is essential? Why do I believe it's not a work? By the way, I didn't have to work very hard when I was being baptized. I pretty much stood there and they dunked me. Wasn't real hard work. I believe it's essential because unless you die to your old self and receive God's gift of grace through faith, you can't be saved. You can't be born again. Can you just get wet? Absolutely. In Mark 16, 16, Jesus says, He that repents and is baptized will be saved repents, and is baptized, they'll be saved. In Acts chapter 2 verse 38, Peter has just preached the first gospel sermon on the birthday of the church. He's told them the life, the history, and the plan and purpose of God through Jesus Christ. And he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ, King and Savior. And the Bible says on the invitation of this birthday message to the church it says that they were cut to the heart you understand what's happening there right the message of jesus the gospel has been preached and sin has been convicted hearts have been absolutely cut and they cry out in response to this cutting of the heart what should we do and Peter says, repent and be baptized in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promises for you, for your children, for this whole generation, for all whom the Lord our God will call. If you're baptized... With no true repentance. If you are not responding to God's grace in faith. It's just a bath. Only God can convince and convict and draw us to himself. So how can you tell? How can you really tell if true repentance has taken place? Because the gospel that has saved us from work has saved us to work. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in an amazing book called The Cost of Discipleship. By the way, I love facial recognition. He writes about cheap grace. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. By the way, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor in America when World War II and the Nazi Holocaust broke out, But he decided to go back to his people so he could love them and share them through the struggling, even after the struggling. Two months before the concentration camp was liberated, he was hung by the neck and killed. One of his last words were these. The greatest call of anyone is come and die. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Right after the Apostle Paul identifies salvation by grace through faith, he says, says this, For we are God's handiwork. He says we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. James, the Lord's half-brother, says in his letter, Faith without works is useless. It's dead. He says even the demons believe, and they shudder in that belief. Faith without fruit is demonic in its nature. In John's letter, which details the assurance we have in our salvation through God's Spirit, he describes how anyone, that's pretty inclusive, isn't it? Anyone, anyone who sees his brother or his sister in need but has no pity on them does not have the love of God in them. Our misunderstanding of the gospel comes because in the Bible, sometimes the word works can mean something negative negative. And sometimes it can mean something very positive. The same word works, but with two meanings. Let me give you an example. If we're having a conversation in America, in English, and I say, I've got a flat, you're going to understand that my car's had a blowout, right? That my automobile tire is vacant of air, right? I got a flat. But if I'm in England, And I'm not going to do it with an English accent because my mom's from quicksand, Kentucky, and it will sound horrible. (laughs) But if I'm in England and I say, I got a flat, the people that are part of that conversation are going to believe I am moving into a new apartment. Is it the same word? Is it? Flat? I got a flat tire. But in England, I have a flat means I'm moving into an apartment. Same word, right? Same word but two distinct meanings. Sometimes in Scripture, the word work means something positive in Scripture. Actions fueled by faith for the glory of God. Work, actions, deeds, fueled by faith for the glory of God our Father. Every time James refers to a work in his letter, that's what he means. A deed or action spurred on by love. The Apostle Paul also uses work in a positive way. He writes to the Thessalonians and he says, every act prompted by your faith. He says to them again in two chapters later, faith expressing itself through acts of love. So works can be a positive word. Action spurred on by our faith and obedience to God. Sometimes in Scripture the word can be in a negative sense. Like in our text, where he says we are not saved by works. He's talking about actions in the flesh. He's talking about a desire to be worthy of God by some duty or obligation to the law. Trying to merit the righteousness of God on my own. When you use works in that method, it's a negative word. The gospel saves us from that kind of work. So I'd want to tell Bill something important. I'd want to share with this with you. So-called belief or faith without acts prompted by that faith are a farce. Real faith always creates fruit. Faith is obedience. In love, faith is an action word. I love this quote from David Platt in his book Radical Together. And David writes, the reality is that when you believe in Christ for salvation, you not only are declared right before God as Father, but you also begin to walk with God as friend. In addition to new birth, Jesus gives you new life a life of joyful obedience and overflowing love. So when you hear Christ's radical call to live sacrificially, you do not think, in the gospel, I am free to flout His commands. Instead, you think, in the gospel, in the gospel, I'm free to follow His commands. And the faith that God has graciously given to you begins to produce radical fruit, From you. That's what being saved by grace through faith is all about. That's how we are unleashed by the gospel as the church instead of being held captive by guilt. True faith in Christ inevitably produces great fruit for Christ, not works fueled by the flesh in an attempt to earn. Our way home. All of it is by grace. Christ is the generous gift of God. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Grace is about faith given from God. It is the fruit of God. And work is a generous response to God's gift. It's how one who has been given grace gives honor and glory to to the one who has given him that grace, right? So as I end, because there's never been a bad short sermon, Wayne Smith, my mentor, used to say, well, here's what you do. You have a great introduction, you have a great conclusion, and you jam those suckers as close together as you can, okay? Amen. So in conclusion, the problem is we don't understand the spirit of adoption. This, the most difficult people that Jesus messed with, hung around with, had any time with, the most difficult people he had to deal with here on earth weren't the outcasts and sinners, were they? What were they? They're religious people. Uh-huh. They were individuals who believed that they had a special relationship with God because they were children of God by heritage. And the Pharisees believed that outwardly, if they looked the part and if they acted the part, that they had earned a special place within the family of God. They felt a sense of entitlement. They were children of Abraham, children of God our religion will save us. I have another quote. It's by Pastor Paul Washer. I love facial recognition. Here's what he says. A lot of people think that Christianity is you doing all the righteous things you hate and avoiding... All the wicked things you love. In order to go to heaven. And he says, no, that's a lost man with religion. A Christian is a person whose heart has been changed. They have new affections. It's a great quote, isn't it? True quote, too. Maybe a little like Bill. Bill. The Pharisees thought that they'd earned their salvation. It was a ticket to get them out of hell free. The Pharisees thought they had that special place just because of who they were and how they looked and cultural religion. But you know what else they did? They demanded, and this is what happens when you live your life like that, They demanded that everyone else work like Mary. That's why Jesus tells them, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter. Nor will you let those who are trying to enter get in there. The kingdom of heaven is not an automatic birthright of the Jew or the Gentile. It is not purchased by good works in the law. In fact, none of us would ever see the need for the kingdom of God if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. You remember Nicodemus, don't you? In John 3, in that conversation, most of us think like Nicodemus. What's he talking about? Can a man or woman enter a second time into their mother's womb that's impossible and Jesus looks and he says you're a teacher of Israel you don't understand the spiritual things that I'm talking about you understand flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit the spirit gives birth to our spirit In John six forty four, Jesus tells the Pharisees this. He says, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws them, pulls them. No one, no Jew, no Gentile. No white person, no black person, no rich person, no poor person. No one. No pothead, no absolutely straight-A scholar. No one. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me begins to draw them. That's why it's grace. God is the seeker, not us. God is the magnet pulling us to his son. And Jesus looks at the teacher of Israel and he says, it's the spirit, not the flesh. Romans 8.10 says, if Christ is in you. It's a conditional statement. Romans 8.10 says, if Christ is in you. Your body is dead because of sin. And we know that's true, don't we? This body is a tent. I heard J.K. and others talking about tents. Do you want to live in a tent permanently, J.K.? No, because after about a week with you in it, it smells like old sweat socks, okay? It's temporary. Paul says this body, it's like a jar of clay. It's not permanent. It's going to die. Because of sin. This body likes Twinkies better than broccoli. I promise you, that's what we live in. But then Paul says, yet, even though that's gonna happen, even though that's true for every one of us, your body is gonna die because of sin, yet, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. You remember Bill? You remember Mary. Bill has no real desire to live any differently than he did before his profession of faith. Mary constantly lives in a state of guilt and insecurity. The gospel hasn't become good news to either Bill or Mary. One thing salvation is his get out of hell free card. Right? You feel me? I got baptized. I'm, I'm in. I don't want to be a post-toasty, so I'll, you know, give me my ticket. You feel me, right? You know what I'm talking about. The other, it hasn't become good news because she lives in a prison of guilt and insecurity. Under the constant chains of obligation and duty. The problem is neither Bill nor Mary are being led by God's Holy Spirit. One is not relying on the Holy Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body. And the other doesn't realize the Holy Spirit has been given to us so we can cry out, Daddy, Father, Abba. Mary lives with God as a stingy judge waiting for her to mess up. Not a gracious good, good father. The gospel will always be misunderstood by both those who try to earn God's favor under the crushing weight of the law and those who believe grace is cheap and allows you just to believe. And have your get out of hell free card. Because neither understand adoption. Neither understand what God's Spirit is calling us to be. What God is doing. And they won't allow Him to do it either. You see, God's Spirit works to bring us to an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. God's entire purpose before creation is to have an intimate relationship with his creation. In Romans chapter 8 verses 11 through 17, here's what God's word says concerning that. It says, "And if and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, Are the children of God. The spirit you received. Does not make you slaves. So that you live again in fear. Rather the spirit you received. Brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry. Abba father. The spirit himself. Testifies with our spirit. That we are God's children. Now if we are children. Then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. So one of my favorite stories is written in Max Ocato's book called The Applause of Heaven. And Max Ocato says, I love facial recognition. says, I knew a woman who for years was married to a very harsh husband. Each day she would leave, and he would leave her lists, lists of work that she was to complete. And they were always lists that was almost impossible to complete. And when he would come home. When she greeted him, even if she had done most of the list, he would find ways to criticize her, to control her, to beat her down. He was never, never satisfied with the inadequacies of her work. After several years, the husband passed away. Sometime later, she remarried this time to a man who lavished her with love and adoration one day while going through a box of old papers guess what she discovered one of her husband's old lists and as she read that list she broke down in tears she just became overwhelmed with emotion and she said I'm still doing all these things no one is ordering me to do them I do it because I love Him. That is the unique characteristic of a new kingdom. Its subjects don't work in order to go to heaven. We work because we are going to heaven. And fear and arrogance have been replaced with gratitude and grace.